Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. On this episode, we have a conversation with Louis S. Warren, the author of the 2018 Bancroft Prize-winning book, God's Red Sun, The Ghost Dance Religion and the Making of Modern America. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. It is not by accident that I chose this conversation and book as the inaugural podcast episode for Writing Westward. Both the book and the discussion with its author exceeded my very high expectations. Louis S. Warren is the W. Turrentine Jackson Professor of U.S. Western History at the University of California, Davis. His book, which we'll discuss today, God's Red Sun, The Ghost Dance Religion and the Making of Modern America, was published in 2018 by Basic Books and was the winner of the prestigious 2018 Bancroft Prize. In this book, Professor Warren offers one of the most comprehensive narrative treatments of the ghost dance religion. This movement began in the 1880s in Nevada, when a Paiute man received visions of a messiah and a renewed millennial world that would come if natives performed certain dances and lived by certain principles. The movement spread quickly across the continent and provides the historical backdrop and context for the 1890 Wounded Knee Massacre, when the U.S. 7th Cavalry slaughtered hundreds of unarmed Lakotas who were adherents of the ghost dance. This event is often where popular understandings of the ghost dance religion end, but Professor Warren shows how it persisted for years after. While detailing this history and bringing many new sources to light, Warren also forwards a unique thesis, that the popular understanding of the ghost dance as a wholly backwards-looking movement intent on turning back the clock to a lost indigenous world might be completely wrong. To the contrary, Warren argues that the religion was a forward-looking and pragmatic faith that offered Native peoples a way to reconcile their heritage with present trials and to chart a confident path into the future while maintaining their indigenous identity in a modern world. The book is beautifully written. It's imbued with an empathy that I rarely see in academic scholarship. I think you will be able to hear Warren's passion in our conversation and the sincerity with which he approached this topic. Again, it was no accident that I chose to feature this book in the podcast inaugural episode. Welcome, Professor Louis Warren, to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Um, we'll um, spend quite a bit of time with kind of the thesis and argument of your book, but before that, I wanted to kind of get a few preliminary questions out there. Um, about 10 years ago, you gave what I believe was one of your first public lectures on this topic, um, here at the Red Center. 
um, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. means that you've been working on this for quite some time. And those not familiar with how books are written might be surprised, you know, that that we do sometimes take a decade or more on these things. But could you kind of tell us how, how it is that you first came um, to this topic? Oh, how do you first come to the topic of the ghost dance? Uh, if you're doing the history of the American West, or if that's that's what you study, it's sort of always there. From the from the time I was a child, and I read "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee," like so many others, um, where that book that book ends with the ghost dance, uh, and the growing up and reading about uh, American Indian history in textbooks. Um, it was often it was usually mentioned as the sort of end of native history in yeah. the United States. I mean, that's usually what happens in textbooks uh, for people who are unfamiliar with them is they we get to the 19th century that they, they do something on on the the wars of the the Indian wars on the plains. And then those things will end with the ghost dance. And then that's it. You often don't you see little or no uh, native history for the for the rest of the American story. I mean, into the 20th century, that's often how those those textbooks go. And and so this was always on my mind that that the ghost dance was presented as a kind of ending of Indian history, which I knew couldn't be right because I knew native people. And and I was, of course, reading other books uh, all, all along uh, that suggest there's a great deal of history after uh, after the ghost dance moment. Um, and so it's always been something that, that I found interesting. Um, the other, the other factor here is that I came from Nevada. I grew up in Nevada and in the, the teachings of, or in what we learn about the ghost dance, um, from the sources we have, right? We learn that the prophecies came from, uh, a northern Paiute man named Wovoka, or uh, also known as Jack Wilson, who lived in Nevada. And mm -hmm. his teaching spread all over the West. And one of the things that always struck me was this was a story about, in part, about someone from Nevada having this huge, huge impact. And yet I could never figure out how that was. That, that was usually not part how the people came to hear his teachings out in the middle of the desert um, it is often not part of the story, and I was very curious about that too. But I think most people that know your work may, at least this is how I always thought of you, was uh, a, as an environmental historian mm -hmm. um, and as kind of a, a Western cultural historian. Mm -hmm. um, so is this a topic that as you were um, doing your books on conservation and poachers and your book on on Buffalo Bill – well, was this something you've been thinking about? I mean, because it's not just that you had an interest. You decided to spend over a decade of your life uh, uh, pursuing this topic. Uh, was there some moment where you thought, you know, I think I'm going to sit down and make this the next decade of my life researching and writing this book? Oh, I think that I, I um, first, one thing I should say is that all of my work, my first book and my second book, uh, has incorporated Native history mm -hmm. into the other stories that I'm telling. So uh, when I did the book on uh, when I wrote Hunter's Game, which is about the fights between local hunters and conservationists over who has access, who has the right to hunt uh, in the early in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, there's a, a whole sequence of chapters there on native people and their struggles with 
with government regulations imposed on hunting. Um, I spent a lot of time in that book talking to Blackfeet people and and reading Blackfeet history. And, and that becomes the, the fight between Blackfeet people and Glacier National Park becomes a central part of that book. When I wrote the Buffalo Bill book, uh, I did come across the ghost dance story again because it figures very prominently in the story of the wild of buffalo bills wild west show uh because after the ghost dance happens and after the wounded knee massacre the government uh the army arrested oh 23 or 24 of the so-called leaders of the ghost dance movement at pine ridge and put them in prison at mm-hmm. fort sheridan and they were offered the choice of either staying in prison for a year or going off with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show to Europe. Um, and they, they, most of them took the latter. Uh, most of them went off with the Wild West show. And huh. so their stories became part of the book that I wrote about Buffalo Bill. And so that, that again, that was another moment where I was doing something completely different from the ghost dance and, and the ghost dance comes into that story. And it was just a sign to me of how, how ever present the ghost dance is in in the history of the American West and how essential it is to understanding other things. Now, in terms of why, you know, how, how I came to spend 10 years writing the book, uh, I guess it was about 10 years. I guess you're right there. Um, I, it's one of those moments where you look back on and think, wow, was <laughs> that much really time really that passed? long? <laughs> yes. Um, and and the, the thing is, you don't, at least I don't, decide to spend 10 years on a book. What happens is I say, oh, I'm going to write this book really fast. I mean, this book is, I, I got this figured out. Then life happens, right? Yeah. Well, you know, you sit down and you, you, you think you're going to take three, three years on a book or four years on a book. Uh, and first of all, yeah, life happens and do a lot of other things in those years. And, and, but there's also the fact that the book just changed dramatically from the time that I first envisioned it to what it became. Uh, what, what happens is if you're, if you're doing it right, I think, Right. As you do more research and turn up more things, your ideas change, um, which is you know, the reason we write books is to learn, um, not just to, to teach. Right. We we are writing books and teaching ourselves as we go along about what what these what this history is. And the sources that I encountered in writing the book were not what I expected. Mm-hmm. So it's I mean, it's always an exploration for the author as well. Yeah. yeah the story, the story is always more complex than you thought it was going to be. And more difficult to wrap your head around than you anticipated when you when you approach the project with what you thought was your rock solid thesis and interpretation right absolutely absolutely i mean when i started this book it was supposed to be and i think the talk that you heard although all those years ago uh was uh was was based on the idea of what the book was then which is it was supposed to be a book about there is a moment in this book you, you'll see it where the prophet of the ghost dance uh meets uh, the, the, the first anthropologist who comes out to interview him, who's sent out from the federal government, and they, they meet in the middle of the desert. Uh, and it's this great moment where this charismatic prophet, um, Jack Wilson or Wavoka, uh, is having a conversation with this social scientist. And, and that moment of the sort of prophet and the social scientist um, it, it's, it, it signifies a lot of things about different ways of knowing the world and this sort of strange encounter in the desert in 1892 in Nevada. And I sort of thought I would write a series of short essays about America in that moment, sort of circling around that encounter. Uh, 
Um, and of course, the book became something completely different mm-hmm. uh, from that. That moment is in the book, but but the book is very different from that now. There have been a lot of studies of the ghost dance um, and lots of books about Wounded Knee and other associated topics, but many of them have been much narrower in focus, perhaps focused you know, on Pine Ridge or other you know, more uh, narrow geographies and, and time periods. And, and yours presents, I mean, really perhaps since that anthropologist, since Moody's work, uh, one of the only kind of broad scale trying to, trying to tell the, the whole story which is a major contribution. But beyond that, you also um, are arguing uh, a, a provocative idea that not, does this, not only does this story need to be um, told and talked about more, but that the way we've been telling it uh, for all these decades and years um, is perhaps a little bit off base. Right. And, and that, that's where I eventually want this conversation uh, to, to arrive at is, is what is the revision that you're offering? Um, but can we first lay out, uh, and, and actually some of this revision is probably going to come through as you lay this out, um, uh, for those that don't kind of know the full story about um, what the ghost dance religion was, mm-hmm. um, what was being preached uh, and, and then observed in this movement, and then kind of the, the thumbnail sketch of where and when it started and then how it and where it spreads to and when. Sure. I mean, the ghost dance religion, um, and it, it becomes, it, it comes, let me put it this way, it comes out of much older traditions in the Great Basin, beginning uh, among northern Paiute people. Uh, there, there are these older traditions of apocalypse and renewal, uh, the prophecies of the world ending and then the world being reborn. And what the ghost dance, what comes to be known as the ghost dance religion of 1890, uh, it begin, that, that religion begins as a sequence of prophecies that are issued by a, uh, a man, again, Wovoka in northern Nevada. And they're taken up initially by northern Paiute people. And, um, from there, the, the, the prophecies and the ritual ceremonial dance that accompanies those prophecies and teachings travels to other reservations and it sweeps most of the of the west in 189 1889 and 90 um, and what the teachings consist of uh typically in in most of the history books it says um that the believers uh maintained the world would end uh that white people would be eliminated um that uh indians would inherit a new earth that would be remade and rejuvenated and revived and it would once again be green and verdant and that they would be able to go back to their old ways uh and live on this fully restored earth um and that in order for this to happen the teaching said that the believers needed to do this dance, but also, uh, again, this is a, as presented in most of the studies of the ghost dance that we have. The, the believers are told that they must be kind to one another, not lie, not steal, not make war, um, and uh, and in general, be good people, live right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that this this will happen. Right. And it's it's a peaceful movement. And then. What 
what happens in the course of things is that as the religion reaches the Lakota Sioux reservations in South Dakota, where it's met with a great deal of enthusiasm, uh, the, the story, the, the way the story typically goes is the army then moves in to crush this religion, which uh, uh, in which people are turning in these dance circles very quickly. And there's a great deal of enthusiasm for it. And there are allegations that believers are putting on bulletproof shirts, what they claim are shirts that are bulletproof and are and are plotting a rebellion. Um, and the, the army then crushes this movement at Wounded Knee. Um, I think most of our listeners will have heard the term Wounded Knee before. They will know that there was a massacre at Wounded Knee. What most people don't realize is that that massacre was perpetrated because those native people were ghost dancers. They were believers and the army was out to crush that movement. Now, um, what did I have to add to that story? I feel like I got a, a fairly good education in undergraduate and, and graduate school, mm-hmm. um, and I understood some of the complexities of this. But the, the general interpretation thereof is that it ends in 1890. Yeah. It was doomed to end because it was a, a backwards-looking movement. Mm-hmm. It was one that simply was incongruous and could not exist with uh, with the nation moving forward. And, and and that's that's the end of the story. Absolutely. And and this is the problem for me is because uh, when I when I pick up this story, there, there are a couple of things that I knew heading into this um, and, and that I was going to try to reconcile. One is that anthropologists have known for a long time that the ghost dance did not end in 1890, uh, that it went on for years afterwards and uh, that it, it spread far and wide and it still has a wide influence. Um, and so how do you reconcile as a historian, how do you reconcile that with this story of everything ending a wounded knee was one of the things that I was very curious about. Uh, but the other thing that that really jumped out at me when I began looking at the sources for uh, for the for what we know about the ghost dance, I mean, as a historian, right, your job is to investigate how we know what we think we know. Right. That that is one of the things that you have to do. And everyone knows what the ghost dance taught. I, every book that I pick up on the ghost dance spends very little time on that subject. And so I anticipated that when I wrote this book that I would be saying the same things about the go, actual ghost dance teachings as mm-hmm. everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the problem was when I started to look at what Wovoka actually said in the work, for example, of James Mooney, that anthropologist who met with him in 1892. Oh, Mooney. I think I said Moody earlier. Oh, Mooney. yeah. It's Mooney. Yeah, James <laughs> Mooney, um, Irish-American anthropologist and a, and a brilliant man, right? self-taught um and and uh uh a real a real genius in many ways when he recorded what Wovoka said when he wrote it down he wrote all of the things that i said you know that that the believers have to be kind to one another not lie not steal not make war um and and to do this dance but he also said and they must work uh, and that Wovoka was very clear on this point they must work for white men uh which i took to mean working for dollars because Wovoka himself both worked for ranchers um, and also cut and sold wood. As a, wa- a wage uh, laborer, right? As a wage Often, laborer, yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, among northern Paiute people in 1889, that was the only way to stay alive was to be a wage laborer. And uh, that this is part of, of living uh, – and what, it, one of the things he's doing is teaching an ethic 
for survival in a in a terrible time of sort of industrialization of the high desert was a terrible time for for native people. And so I, I got intrigued with that, that these these teachings about that he's teaching people to labor. I mean, he, he wants the believers to labor. That doesn't seem to fit with this idea of it being a, a wholly backwards looking religion that's looking to turn back the clock. Right. Right. It's it's I mean, I think that religions are always contradictory. Right. And and religious religions allow us to reconcile our contradictions. Mm -hmm. So if you are longing for a life without labor. Right. If if you believe that that should be what the future is, either on this earth or in the afterlife, one of the things that not just the ghost dance, but other religions teach um, in my experience, right, is that if you labor, uh, labor well in this life, uh, at the end, at the end of history or at the end of your life, you will uh, you will enter a world where there is no labor. Yeah. And and they, they're, thereby the contradiction is reconciled. I, I, that's how I that's how I interpret that 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 kind of, of teaching, both in the ghost dance. And it, I mean, it's it's not that different. That part of the teaching isn't that different from. Some of the teachings that, you know, uh, in Protestant Christianity. But on top of that, I have to say, on top of what uh, Wovoka had to say about labor, I started to find sources where he said a great deal more uh, along these lines, um, where he says that believers must send their children to school. Yeah, to, to, to white American schools, right? Yeah, because at this point, actually, on the reservations, particularly in South Dakota and on the plains, uh, native children are being taken off to boarding schools, or there are building now, there, there are day schools going up as well. Um, and Wovoka himself was a big believer in, in schooling for children. He sent his own children. Uh, the, the school opened in Carson City for native children in 1890. A boarding school. Uh, he sent his own children and would actually go around um, trying to persuade other parents to send their children as well. Um, in addition to sending your children to school and uh, going to work, one of the things he says is you should cooperate with your agents, with the Indian agents who supervise the reservations. Um, he says that you should go to church. Um, and he says all these churches are mine. Um, and this I found really fascinating because among the northern among northern Paiute people, there wasn't such a uh, a dispute about what Christian churches to belong to. Christian missionaries were very thin on the ground in northern Nevada in these years. But among the believers who came to listen to Wavoka from the northern plains, particularly Lakotas, uh, there was a fierce contest going on between Lakotas and various different groups of missionaries, Protestants and Catholics, over what religion native people should take up, whether it should be Protestant, whether it should be Catholic, uh, or, or whether among many Lakotas, whether they could hang on to the old religion um, and, and stick with that. And what Wovoka says to them is, pick a church and go to it. It doesn't matter which one. Um, but then you also will do these other things and you will do this dance and you will, you will send your children to school. You will, you will go to work. Um, you will be kind to one another and so forth. And we will restore the earth and there will be a new world, uh, that is an Indian world. Um, he makes that very clear in which Indians will be free and have autonomy 
Uh, and and that the teachings then become I mean, when I when I found these sources, the question becomes, you know, what does this mean about the religion that Wovoka was saying these things um, was was saying to people, you know, send your children to school, go to work. Uh, and what what does that tell us about this religion and how does it look different from what we thought? Um, and it seems to me that one of the things he's trying to say is if we do these things, the world will be renewed the way that I am. I'm talking about, right? The world will be renewed as as a, a place of of revived, uh, be a revived Indian world. Um, and it, it seems to me what he's saying is we can take up these things, schooling, wage work, and so forth, um, and yet remain Indian, mm-hmm. remain native. We will not assimilate. We will accommodate, but we will not assimilate. And I, I think that that's part of the core of the teaching here is trying to, uh, I, I mean, not in a in a way that that is um, strategic. I, I don't think Wovoka is thinking about this strategically. I think he's he's revealing the teachings as he finds them in his visions. Right. I don't think. But I think the effect of it is that uh, the, the ghost dance is a means of claiming an Indian identity and Indian culture in the midst of making all of these accommodations. Because if you go back and look at the discussions native people are having in 1889 and 90, many of them are saying, you know, what, what, what does it mean that we're, you know, now we're freight drivers, we're teamsters and we're not Buffalo hunters or we're not, you know, we're not what we were before. And we're doing these things that white people do. Does this mean we're becoming white? They're trying to figure out their own identities. How's Absolutely. That? I mean, they're, and they're huge arguments about this, right? The people saying, no, it doesn't. People say, yes, it does. And what Avoca is saying is, no, you know, that's, that is, you're going to do this labor as an, as a native person and you're going to reclaim your native earth by doing it. This is a, I mean, those who are familiar with this, I think will immediately realize this is a pretty radical kind of, um, not necessarily, um, introduction of, of, radically different content but a full reframing of kind of how we how we approach it um many have told it as that this there was such fervor and enthusiasm for this religion because it promised you know a return to the old ways um are are you and and you, you are arguing that that is that's part of it that's in the future right that there will be a renewal of the of the world and bison will come back and there will be these changes but are you also arguing that it provided a pragmatic way for native peoples to to to, to grapple with and and enter into and participate in the, the modern world that they were that they were having these debates about? Yes, I that's exactly right. Did they see that? Is that why they were grabbing onto it because they, were they conscious of the way in which um Awoka was offering them an an Indian passage? into the modern world? I think that different believers obviously took it up right for different reasons and in different ways. And and let's be clear, right? This is a story uh, of the ghost dance, but there are so many stories of the ghost dance that are experienced by believers in different ways. But I would say this, um, that there were many people who took up the the faith 
uh, anticipating that the end of the world was just around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were very excited about this. Um, you know, they, they called and, and there were, there were problems in, in sort of reconciling the different teachings with one another for the believers or challenges in doing that. So for example, at Pine Ridge, um, the kids, the believers, children, uh, overwhelmingly left the schools to go join the dance circles. But uh, when they were asked about this, the believers said, well, we, we, we're told to send our children to school and school's a good thing. They would say that. But we're also told to take our children to church. And this is our church. Mm. This religion is our church. So, and the Messiah is coming. I mean, the teachings were that a Messiah, an Indian Messiah would come, right? When the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, uh, had been achieved, a Indian Messiah would come to usher in this new world. And they would say, he's, he's on his way. Uh, and we need to be there. We need to be ready. So, in many ways, l- let me do this. I, uh, I I am wary of always of comparing religions to each other because they're so different, right? Religions across cultures, very different things. But think for a minute about Christianity and about Protestant Christianity, and let's talk about let's just think about white people for a minute, white white believers in the 19th century or even now, right? There are any number of Christian denominations, Methodists, right, uh, Baptists, uh, it, it come to mind immediately, right, who've had fervent, fervent revivals um, in the past and, and in the very recent past. But if we go back to the 19th century, there are huge revivals that sweep entire regions and people in those revivals convinced that Jesus is coming momentarily. He's, 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 he's about to arrive. And the teachings that they live by day to day, right, about about working hard, about being neighborly, about caring for one another and about following the Ten Commandments and all of those things, those are one set of teachings. And when the revival reaches its peak, though, and and the belief is that that Jesus is about to arrive, uh, people will often stop going to work. Right. They stop plowing their fields. Uh, they get caught up in the enthusiasm and and in the ecstasy of it. And we don't consider these contradictory behaviors at all. Right. When we think about the history of Christianity, that's part of the whole package of Christianity. Right. That you can have one set of teachings, which is for day to day. But then at the height of, uh, of, of religious ecstasy and enthusiasm, some of those teachings might be temporarily set aside, at least because people believe the end is near. This happened with the ghost dance, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it certainly happened, uh, it happened at Pine Ridge and it happened at a few other places. It happens on the Southern Plains, um, in Oklahoma among the Southern Arapaho. There's also a huge amount of enthusiasm and, and circles turning for hours, right? Uh, at a time and, and people dancing, uh, long into the night, right? Dancing all night long. Those kinds of, of behaviors, um, uh, I would say people, had, when they got in the dance circle and, and people were dancing, in the, they would often dance until they collapsed, um, at least in, in South Dakota, among Lakota people, and also among Southern Arapahoes in Oklahoma. Uh, the dancers would then wake up from these uh, – from, from after they collapsed, they would, they would awaken and talk about the visions they had had. 
in which they had traveled in the afterlife and had seen this new world that was coming and their their deceased relatives their their many many of these people right all of these people had lost uh, so many of their relatives to sickness and war and many mothers saw their their deceased children uh and and so many uh uh began to see deceased children in their visions that that parents who had lost children carried toys into the dance circle uh as gifts for the the spirits of their children they they were sure they would encounter uh-huh. um the 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 sense of of um of joy and sorrow combined in those kinds of moments right where people are uh i mean there are account there's account after account after account of ghost dancers um joining the circle being very skeptical saying i didn't think this was was true but i thought i should try it because i i lost my brother and uh they would say you know and i miss my brother and i want to see him and then they would uh yeah. now not everybody would some people would get into the circle and dance and say it just didn't it didn't work for me yeah um but it, there there was there was this wide enthusiasm for this experience on the plains now among northern paiute people Wavoka had visions, but there are not accounts of dancers having those kinds of visions. It was a different the, the experience seems to change out on the plains. Something something different is going on. So we need but, to recognize the diversity and yeah, experience. Yeah, here, the, the, the religion is never just one thing. I have had people ask me, why is it called a religion? Isn't that a Western way of understanding? native spirituality and obviously to some degree that term is uh is west i mean it is a western term right um uh but i i would i would say this you can certainly call the ghost dance a spiritual practice a ceremonial practice you you call it any number of things but the believers at the time uh, would make it very clear to their interlocutors to white people and to others who asked them that this was a church and that this was a religion and that it was on a par with any of the religions the white people were bringing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was part of the point Yeah, was they uh, had become accustomed to missionaries fighting with each other over who was right about Christianity. You know, there were, there were terrible feuds between Catholics and Protestants, Catholic and Protestant missionaries on many reservations. Uh, and to native people, when they, when, as they watch these people fight with each other over how to worship Christ, right, uh, what they took away from that in many cases was, well, there's more than one way to worship our creator, obviously. And all we're doing is worshiping our creator in our own way. Yeah. Um, and, and claiming an often uh, a, a validity for it on those terms. I, I see this in, in the book. I argue this is uh, part of that process in which native people come to claim native religion as having e- at least equal standing mm-hmm. with any Western religions and deserving of the same constitutional protections. Now, they don't say that in the ghost dance moment. They don't they're not yet invoking the First Amendment. But the um, legacy they, they do later and the legacies, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. They do What's fascinating here is that when you read accounts, you know, the, as these white observers are watching the dances and, and things, they speak about them almost exclusively in 
kind of the these terms of uh, the savages dancing and and they, they don't offer any kind of validity to this religious experience when in many of their own religious traditions histories you know you go back like as you said go, go back to the the great awakening and the second great awakening and there's remarkable uh, parallels here to expressions of religious experience that are given room in in these christian traditions but absolutely but not for native. I, I've, and that, that was something that i had not not previously considered Yes, and and it's it's one of those things where um, if you put, I mean, again, we we have to be very careful comparing religions across cultures. Right? We got We got to be very careful about that. But but if you put uh, uh, do a history of if you do a history of religious revivals in the United States, and you start to put native revivals in those in that narrative in that in that grand story of all of these different revivals, what's that look like? Um, how are these things connected? And obviously they're, they're very different, but how are they connected? And you, you'll find they are connected in many cases. I mean, one of the things uh, you asked me about, were there people who thought of the ghost dance as a pragmatic way forward? And I think there there were many people who, who valued the ghost dance for its pragmatism. Uh, among them, there were a large number of graduates of boarding schools, Indian boarding schools, uh, Carlisle Indian School and, and several others, uh, who became ghost dancers on the plains. And this is something that at the time observers simply refused to see. Um, not all observers. Mooney noticed it and wrote about it. But others would say, well, the ghost dance is a – it's people who are refusing to move forward and to trying to hang on to the old ways and see old timers. The educated people will have nothing to do with it. Mm. And that's simply not true. Many of the leaders of the ghost dance on the Southern Plains were boarding school graduates. And I, I mean, I think for them, who, these people have been exposed to a, a lot of religious teaching, a lot of Christian teaching. Some of them, I'm sure, had seen religious revivals uh, among white people. And how those religious revivals passed through white communities. And when the ghost dance came to the Southern Plains, there were a good many people uh, who had come back to the reservation from boarding school and had faced their own set of challenges because they're trained at boarding school to be things like shoemakers or bakers mm -hmm. or wheelwrights. And there's simply no work at the reservation for the skills that they have. Right. Yeah, we often talk uh, about how they're caught between two worlds. Right. So so is the ghost dance a way for them to kind of reconcile or to I think so. To, to, to negotiate mean, these these problems of having received right. this education and then back on the reservation and not sure where they fit or how, how to make things fit together. Yeah, and one of the things that they face coming back to the reservation is they've missed out on a whole because they've been away so many years. They missed out on the ceremonial education they would normally get as they grew up, right? You come back to the reservation, and if you become a ghost dancer, and and you are actually, uh, as what happened to many, not many, but happened to a number of uh, of boarding school graduates, they become visionaries. That is, they're they're having these powerful visions of their ancestors and of the world, the afterworld, and so forth. That actually. Uh, seem to affect other people and that other people can believe in their visions as well. Um, 
when you have that kind, you come back into this moment and you there's this new religion and you have standing in that new religion and it is an Indian religion, right? It helps bridge some of this gap between the school leavers or the school graduates, I should say, and the and the people who didn't go to school. And there's a considerable social gap there. Mm -hmm. that uh, that the ghost dance i think allows all of these people to get into the circle together uh and to and to um uh to worship together is 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 a a way yeah it's a very powerful uh community um sort of orienting religion and 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 that's certainly the case too uh, up at uh at pine ridge and at rosebud among lakotas uh, and and in the other Lakota reservations, too, Cheyenne River, uh, for example, um, they, and at Standing Rock, you find that there are a good many Lakotas who've been going to Christian churches by 1889. There, there are a good many who've been going. Estimates are all over the place, but some people say as many as half the people had been going to these wow. Christian churches, and half had not. Right. And one of the things you find in the in the ghost dance moment is that a lot of the people who are refusing Christian teachings take up the ghost dance. But a lot of the the, the people who identify themselves as Christians, Lakotas who identify themselves as Christians, also take up the ghost dance. And some of them defend it as being a Christian ritual. Now, I don't think all ghost dancers believed it was a Christian ritual. Not at all. I mean, there's good evidence that some said, no, this is a different Messiah. Right. But the fact is, you could get Christians and non-Christians in the same circle, holding hands and dancing together because it was a circle that turned uh, alternated uh, men, men and women around mm-hmm. this whole circle. and Everyone would hold hands. Um, it, they would that all being together, I think, signifies that. That in some ways this this belief allows people to reclaim their community across mm. these increasingly uh, problematic religious lines that had been imposed on them with colonialism, right? With with the coming of the missionaries, um, and, and that that kind of missionization of the reservations was really tearing the communities apart by this time. And the ghost dance is kind of a healing moment. Wow. And I don't know if that speaks to why uh, – well, I'm sure it speaks to why uh, reservation agents felt uh, threatened by it, not just because they uh, were even, – even though you know some thought, oh, this is a war dance and they're yeah. they're, ready, they're getting a rebellion together and others are saying, no, it's clearly not that. Um, uh, you know, a, a reinvigorated and strengthened Native community is, uh, I wonder, implicitly threatening to – well, especially to assimilationist goals and those that right. were uh, – Right, right. And so forth. I- yeah, I mean, assimilation is is full bore government policy yeah. at this time, right? And the idea of assimilation is you're supposed to get rid of Indian religion yeah. altogether, and and they're going to become just Christians who look and dress like everyone else and and plow the plains as farmers, and uh, and and that will be that. This was another thing I I don't think I mentioned by the way. The ghost dance actually the, the teachings of the ghost dance include, um, you know, Jack Wilson Wavoka says. Uh, get yourselves farms to live on. Oh yeah, buy, buy farms, own property. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's the irony. I mean, I I wrote down one quote here. You, and and here's the, the grand irony is that, in many ways, the religion was answering all of so many of the things that assimilationists were hoping would occur. 
Right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and you you write um, that uh, speaking of the victims of Wounded Knee, you said these are people who sallied forth courageously into the future to do the things that white people demanded. Yeah. Um, but you the caveat is a but without becoming who they demanded. Right. Without becoming yeah. white. But yeah. yeah but yeah. and we can argue about whether or not they were ever going to allow be allowed to fully integrate and become white anyways. Um uh, because right. plenty of examples, this, you know, uh, this prime among them of uh, attempts to to do all the things they were being asked, you know, were met with. Right. Uh, without open arms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the um, the one of the things that when you try to look at the challenges native communities are facing in that moment of the 1880s. Right. And where it's it's clear that armed resistance is no longer possible that's long gone by this time right it's uh among lakotas who who were some of the last uh to 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 keep up the armed resistance right it's it's over by 1877 and uh even sitting bull has come to the reservation down back from canada by 1881 so you know there's when they look around and say well what do we do now right um i mean it's not that hard to to understand their logic. They they say things like, well, you know, if you look at these white people, they have an awful lot of power. Uh, they have an awful lot of wealth and they seem to be farming. So. Maybe we got to try that. Yeah. Right. We'll try it out. Um, they say we got to send our kids to school uh, and there are uh, this is a terribly difficult thing to do. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of parents and grandparents uh, and aunts and uncles who were responsible for educating the next generation would say, well, we, we do need to try this. Right. And, and they're willing to give it a try. And the ghost dance, I think, uh, is in the teachings of the ghost dance in those teachings where Wovoka is saying, look, you have to do these things as well as, uh, you know, this dance and, and we, and, and this code of behavior, uh, includes things like that that these reservation agents want us to do. Um, you know, my my sense of why the reservation agents, the su- the superintendents of all these reservations, couldn't actually see this as a as something positive uh, has to do with. I mean, there, there are various things here. One is that the the religion. In various places, particularly in South Dakota, um, was led by the old holy men, mm-hmm. the holy men of the old religion. Um, and when I say old, they're not that old. They're in their 40s, most of them, which would make them at that time probably grandfathers. So they, they were elders by that time. Uh, but these guys had been many of them had been with Crazy Horse and with Sitting Bull, had fought Custer at Little Bighorn and were associated with the so-called non-progressive element on the reservation. And these guys became leading ghost dance teachers. Now, we know that they said the same things that, that I, we've been talking about, that Wovoka says. Uh, we know that, that what they taught uh, often included things like, uh, you know, you will send your children to school and, and take up farming. There's other eyewitness accounts of those that are written mm-hmm. down. Um, but, but they're suspect, right? They're suspect. And yeah. quite often, uh, you know, at, 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 in South Dakota, at Pine Ridge in particular, there's such a fight going on between agents 
who are demanding total submission of the old holy men and the old tribal leaders um, and different groups of native people who are trying to chart a way forward. Um, that there's, it's very hard for agents to get good information about what's actually going on with the ghost dance. And it's very, it's very rare for them to want to hear what's actually going on. The, the striking thing about that moment when you read through the sources is the degree to which authorities had already made up their mind what yeah. this religion was. The moment it, it, even before it appeared, when they heard rumors of it, they, immediately anticipated it's it's a rebellion in the making yeah they had a they had a, a narrative yeah and, and they it's a conspiracy and even right. when they're and when they're told the opposite they don't they don't they don't believe it. It. they yeah. don't believe it and and there are a fair number of other people who will attest to the to the truth of their uh of their beliefs that is there are uh allies of indian agents who are in the police or in uh, who, are, who are who are also native, right? Who will tell them, yeah, these ghost dancers are up to no good, uh, and there are people who will do that to get their own uh, for their own political reasons. Uh, and in the end, the the result of this, of course, is that the the army ends up coming to the reservation, and then it's you have the army doing police work, and it's it's uh, on the reservation, and it's a disaster. Yeah, we see how that ends. Abs- absolute catastrophe, right? Um, but yes, the, the, the people, you know, all along you find, I find in the sources, people who, who are trying to explain the ghost dance, I mean, believers who are trying to explain the ghost dance to non-believers, to, to white authorities by emphasizing its pragmatism, um, and, and what a good force this can be for native people. Um, they get nowhere usually there are, there, I should say too, there are a handful of white people who do see this, um, you know, I think Mooney gets some things wrong, particularly in South Dakota. But he does say that this religion did a powerful lot of good on most of the reservations where it appeared. It helped people reconcile themselves to the to reservation life and to kind of trying to move forward in a new to a new kind of future that they hadn't anticipated before. He says that, uh, and there are there are observers. You know, there's a there's a guy who writes uh to the army uh saying um you know i've been reading in the papers here in chicago about this religion and why don't you guys just leave it alone it's it sounds to me like a camp meeting and can't the indians have camp meetings and and there are people like that but they are few and far between most uh most people in, who read the newspapers right most of the army the vast majority of the army uh, and, and of course, the, uh, the Indian agents and the Indian office, they all have this old colonial narrative in their heads that, you know, we, we know it from the movies, right? The sound of drums in the distance, yeah. right? The Indians are dancing. Uh oh, that's supposed to be, that's supposed to mean trouble. And that is an old narrative, colonial narrative that, that takes place. I mean, that, that takes a grip here. Yeah. I mean, there's also the time, you know, that this vanishing Indian, the sense of the vanishing Indian going in and, and I, I don't know if I read this in your book, but I believe it was um, Suzette LaFleche mm-hmm. who uh, – and I don't remember what newspaper in Omaha she was reporting for. But I think I remember reading that you know she had came back and you know said to her editors, you know, this is not a, a violent movement. And the, the editors you know, in one way or another said, you know, that's not what our readers want to read. Yeah. You know, our, our readers uh, 
want to read stories about that reaffirms their idea of a vanishing Indian, or they want to read about a war. Yeah, um, and, and they want to read they want to read about war so that they know why Indians have to vanish. Yeah, it, right? it, it justifies that. Yeah, you know, as as they're wringing their hands and lamenting it, it also then provides kind of a justification. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I wanted to turn to one, and we we can't keep listeners too long. Um, I was one of the other things that struck me throughout this book. Um, and we've already talked a lot about modernity and so forth. But if you were to ask me, you know, how are how are these ghost dance evangelists traveling around? Yeah, in my head, I you know I I pictured natives on horseback and mm-hmm. and so forth. Even though if you had said, but but Brendan, it's 1890. Yeah. So, so how how are they communicating? How are they uh, traveling? Um, I I was shocked at how um, strong just kind of these preconceived notions of natives being uh, a, a, rel- a relic of the past and being on horseback. But of course they're communicating by telegraph and the U.S. Postal Service and they're traveling on rail. Yeah. And um, as I was reading through these, as you were kind of talking about how they used mo- very modern. Um, technologies and so forth uh, to spread the religion, I said, well, of of course they did. And I had to pause and realize just how pervasive um, just some of these stereotypes of 19th century uh, Indians were, even even in in me. Um, Right, right. It kind of shocked me. And then you also bring, you know, we, uh, even at Wounded Knee, um, the the violence is often... um, the triggering moment is often a black coyote is how it's told, mm-hmm. right? As he's not wanting to give up his gun. Right. And, and you, you, you note that he, he wasn't, it's not because he just wanted to keep his gun, but he wanted to be paid for it. Yeah. He if said, he, I paid good money for this gun and nobody's taken it unless they pay me first. Right. So it wasn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't a, a backwards looking Indian just wanting to hold on to his weapon. It was a very modern Indian saying, well, but, Absolutely. I, but I want cash. Yeah. And, and, and the government has taken my stuff. They got to pay me for it. Yeah. And the, the these Minikonjus, as they're fleeing, they're all concerned about, but what about my farm? Is someone going to ransack it? Is my property going to be protected? Um, what about the hay that we were just, um, you know, gathering up? Like they, they, these are all, Natives participating in modern economies and modern technologies. And of the many takeaways I had from this book, that was something that made me pause repeatedly and is now making me kind of rethink a number of Native topics that I'm familiar with and saying, I I need to reconsider how I'm framing these in my mind, especially as we get to kind of this turn of the century era. Right, right. and I don't know if you uh, set out to have that be uh, one of the big takeaways for the book, but that's something that struck me again and again. Well, this is, I mean, certainly when I was, um, th- the first time I ever went through Walker River, which is where the prophecies come from, uh, and and realized that um, uh, there was, th- that this was where the prophecies emerge and this was the place of the prophet. It, it, when you get there, it's today, it's on a state highway, but it, it really doesn't feel like, uh, I, I mean, it feels like a lot of people say, well, it feels like the middle of nowhere. And it's not, I mean, there's a, there's a community, there are communities there, there are people living there, but it does feel like you are in the, like, how did this, this, this religion that had such an impact, how did it come from here? How did people find out about it? And, it really is fascinating how 
that the networks of native communication in that era work. Um, I mean, there's a lot of visiting going on between Indian peoples mm-hmm. from one reservation to another. And the story is usually that the Bannock people from Idaho, from what's now near Pocatello, uh, came down on the train and were visiting relatives uh, among northern Paiutes there at, at Walker River and and saw these dances and heard about these prophecies and took them back to Idaho. And there uh, at Fort Hall, the reservation at Fort Hall attracted customarily a, a lot of people from uh, from the plains yeah. and from the from the Rockies would would go there. And Lakotas find out about it there. And Arapahoes, northern Arapahoes are there, are up near there. They, they the religion moves over to Wind River, Wyoming, uh, with northern Arapahoes, and from there it goes down to southern Arapahoes in Oklahoma and over to Lakotas, and uh, it goes up to Montana to northern Cheyenne. It it, it goes all over, but it, it doesn't just go. It's it's people moving and taking the teachings with them. So, yeah, my question when I started was one of them was how did they do all this? And it's they get on the train. Um, and they're <laughs> how, many, how else would they? Of, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's and they they sometimes it, it depends. But different Indian tribes had tribal nations had agreements with railroads um, that in return for easements to build the railroads across reservations, they could sometimes travel for free. I found uh, northern, this in my research, yeah. Of, yeah, northern of, of individuals had a, having passes. Yeah, right. And it's I my sense of this was that by the time the religion was reaching its peak, and you had hundreds of of Indian men and women coming down from the plains to Walker River on the train, um, that train that they were riding from Reno down to to Walker River, there was an easement. Uh, Northern Paiutes were allowed to ride that train for free. And all of these accounts of native people, there, there are a few of them who say, you know, it was amazing. Everyone on the train was so nice to us, um, by which I think they mean nobody demanded money um, mm. uh, while they were on that train. And it, it's just one of these things where sometimes they're getting money together and buying tickets and other times they don't have to. Uh, because they're traveling on a train where there's this agreement between Indian people and the railroad and the conductors simply aren't collecting tickets from Indian people. Um, and, and so it's, it's a really fascinating kind of world in which there's, there are a lot of Indians on the train. Um, and I've seen evidence before where different white people would try to pass themselves off as Indians in order <laughs> not to pay really? for their train ticket. Yeah, in fact, railroads complained about this. I think we, I think we need a book about native railroad. Yeah, yeah, um. <laughs> and I, I know someone who's actually working on. on well, there we go. That's book. great. <laughs> yeah, a dissertation actually. Yeah, uh, at, at, and so there's a there there's that's part of it. The other thing is just that, as you say, um, there are a lot of graduates of boarding schools who go along on these journeys to record the teachings and they write them down and they send them through the mail to people at other reservations. Uh, the U S postal service plays a big role in the ghost dance as do the the telegraph, uh, both for in, in the telegraph plays a huge role in suppressing the ghost dance. Uh, I mean, the army uses it. Indian agents use it. Um, critics, of the ghost dance among native people. And there are native people who don't believe in the ghost dance and who begin to criticize it also use these tools to try to fight against the ghost dance. But all of these tools are very useful for the believers. Uh, and in a lot of ways, again, that, that's this sort of speaks to the the utility of the ghost dance or the meaning of the ghost dance as a as a modern religion for these people. 
Um, and, and I think it's, it, it is a, a religion that spread partly through all of these modern conveniences, as you as you mentioned. Absolutely fascinating. Well, I think we might be about out of time. I want to thank you for um, not just writing on this uh, topic, but you write with with a sensitivity and an empathy that I found quite striking. I mean, and you you ask philosophic at, at some point, trying to point out how better understanding this, you know, should influence how we understand current events and world religions today and different peoples. And I think the tone in which you write goes a long way to, uh, to, I think, to accomplishing that, or at least to pointing us into directions and where we can have more productive dialogue today as well. So I, I definitely appreciated that. Well, thank you very much, Brendan, and, and for that. And I, I should say that I learned a huge amount in doing this book from uh, from native friends and consultants uh, who helped me out along the way. I, you know, it's it's not a book in which I, I didn't collect oral histories. Um, I was working from a documentary record just from 1889 and 90. Uh, but uh, my old friend Arthur Amiot um, uh, up in in South Dakota uh, was a huge help to me in in understanding uh, how the ghost dance is situated within uh, Lakota tradition. And Marlon Thompson over at, uh, at Walker River, he's the tribal historian for the Yarrington Paiute tribe. He was a gigantic help to me in sort of coming to understand some of the things that Wovoka was saying and how that, how that relates to Northern Paiute belief, uh, and, and spirituality. And, and then Roderick Sweezy in Oklahoma, um, who who helped me enormously in thinking about the ghost dance and its relation to Southern Arapaho tradition, um, and all of these people in in going through these these materials that myself I was learning a lot, but then being able to go talk uh, to these to these people uh, to my teachers was immensely helpful, and I want to thank them. Well, I, I think their influence definitely comes through in the text. Thank you. You know, quickly, if we have you know, say we have thirty seconds here, what what's next for you? Oh, uh, <laughs> that's always the question, right? I I tend to go off in radically different directions. Uh, I, there is a short book I would like to do about um, one of the the figures in this book, a, a short a treatment of uh, Short Bull, who's one of the one of the evangelists, uh, who's and also an one artist. of the more, We actually didn't get to him. But uh, one of the more interesting stories that readers should look for. Yeah, it, he's a fa- and so I've, I'm thinking about doing something short about him, uh, a, a shorter book. But then I'm also I'm looking at some writing on uh, California, um, writing a book on on the making of modern California. Uh, it's sort of taking me in a completely different direction. Uh, but how California has, has sort of uh, become a world power is is one of the, the subjects I'm interested in. Uh, I'm also I've also got an abiding interest in Rachel Carson and I'm working on some things on Rachel Carson. So one of these I'm going to pick as my major project here at the next uh, very shortly because I've got the next year off and I'm, I'll be working on uh, oh. on that. Uh, but these Thank things you always for joining take me us a while. Well, I hope it's I hope Writing it's Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center of Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm and I hope Rensink, it won't take 10 years, but you never know. I'm host, producer, yeah. and engineer. Well, pretty much well thanks for taking some time to join so us. If you have any praise or critique, I guess you can probably Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you, Brendan. I also serve here at the Red Center as the assistant director and as an assistant professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions not just about the podcast, but about the Red Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. 
You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description. If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.